This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Here you'll find interviews with writers you already love, like Jennifer Egan and Rebecca Mackay, mixed in with up-and-coming voices like Alexandra Kleeman and Ruman Alam. You'll find us wherever you listen to podcasts, but check out previous episodes at burnedbybooks.com and on Instagram and Twitter at Burned by Books. Let's start the show. We live in a political moment in which everything feels newly broken. On January 6th, the unthinkable happened. A band of supporters of the former president were called to overthrow the democratic transition of power from one administration to the next. But my guest today, the acclaimed writer of novels, short fiction, memoir, and countless other works in prose, A.M. Holmes, plots the early cracks in what, in what we thought was something solid and lasting. In her most recent of over a dozen books, the novel The Unfolding, Holmes imagines a parallel America in which the election of Barack Obama engendered fear and hatred enough to bring about a coup attempt. Unlike the attack unleashed by Trump after his decisive loss in 2020, Holmes tells the story of a seemingly genteel knife in the side of democracy. Her focus is a Republican major donor who is known in D.C. circles as the big guy. The catalyst for what will be his hilarious and catastrophic attempt to unseat democracy is the defeat of John McCain by his political neophyte Barack Obama in the 2008 election. I'm shaken, the big guy tells his wife. I can't spend the next 30 years watching it all come undone. The everything in question is the Republican Party's myopic vision of American history as a movie reel playing backward to arrive at the 1950s. Ringing as a dissonance to the fife and drum music of the unfolding insurrection is the awakening of the big guy's daughter, Megan. Megan has lived a life of unerring privilege, horses, 
private girls' school and the like, and she has been tutored by her father to understand all of world history as dead-ending into American essentialism. But a life without friction starts to feel unsatisfying to Megan, who begins to question her father's definitions of history, freedom, and democracy. Her awakening forecasts one possible direction away from an unwinding of democracy. But like so much in A.M. Holmes's clever reading of Privilege and Power, nothing gold can stay. A.M. Holmes is a writer for who for decades has dared to directly confront our national shames. She takes chances with voice and perspective, genre and subject matter that few other writers have done with such literary accomplishment. The unfolding is both a biting satire of the toxic lust for power that has overcome an entire political party, and it is a reminder that our confidence in the persistence of democracy has too often been a blind faith. A.M. Holmes's previous work includes This Book Will Save Your Life and May We Be Forgiven, which won the 2013 Orange Women's Prize for Fiction. Music for Torching, The End of Alice, in a Country of Mothers and Jack, as well as the short story collections, Days of Awe, Things You Should Know, and The Safety of Objects, which I will say is one of my all-time favorite short story collections, as well as the best-selling memoir, The Mistress's Daughter, along with a travel memoir, Los Angeles, People, Places, and the Castle on the Hill, and the artist book, Appendix A. Among her many TV and film projects, she has been a writer both for the TV adaptation of Stephen King's Mr. Mercedes and Showtime's The L Word. Welcome to the show, A.M. Holmes. Thank you so much for having me. It is a real pleasure to get to talk with you. And this book feels at once both prescient of everything that has happened over the last few years, but also a callback to a time that we believed in that democracy was perhaps safely, safely stowed, and which you have called, I think, appropriately into question. And so I'm going to start by guessing that you started writing the unfolding well before the insurrection of January 6th. So tell us how you came to be writing a novel that offers this parallel history for what how we might have gotten to sedition earlier in the country's history. Right. Well, I think I think all of what you said makes a lot of sense. And I think in some ways, um, what they are talking about and planning uh, in the unfolding is exactly kind of what got us to January 6th. And so I guess I did feel something was happening quite a long time ago. In fact, before Trump was even a candidate, I had the sense that the American political system or establishment or whatever one might call it had lost touch with the American people. Um, And not on any one side, but in general, and that the political establishment had become more about the players in the political establishment and, and about money and raising money and power that had anything to do with actually representing people. And that was gnawing at me and disturbing. And then I guess I sort of was beginning to clock the rise of what we now call dark money, but the infusion of what, you know, in 2008, one could, for lack of a word, buy a lot of influence for $100,000. But Mm. now what we see in 2022 is that, like, you know, the man who 
sort of behind the Federalist Society, just put in $1.8 billion. Um, and that's a lot of... Um, that's a lot of influence and that's a lot of social media and that's a lot of narrative that one can buy. And so it all concerns me greatly. And yes, there was, when I started, uh, things were in some ways so much less precarious even. Yeah. And this idea of that speech is in, in some way, you know, represented by money and mm -hmm. as the amount of money that goes up required to have speech and to have powerful speech increases, we can just see sort of step by step the way in which our own voices are, are quieted. Yeah. And again, it's the kind of thing that, you know, it's as, as a writer and as someone who teaches, one of the things that I always talk about in my classes, and I would say doesn't get talked enough about in teaching and looking at fiction is economics. So literally, what are the economics of the characters lives? What are the economic factors that affect who we are and who we become? And so that's just one of the kinds of threads that I'm particularly interested in. And I think that the last few years in American history and American money, have been fascinating and and that we still as sort of individuals and people don't want to accept the reality of the dissonance between who the average american is and the enormous impact that big money has on our lives you know mm -hmm. when defending the second amendment and its recent interpretation as a guns everywhere right right conservatives will say that built into the Constitution is the understanding that good men must be prepared to overthrow the government when it no longer reflects the will of a majority of the people. What is never explained is how that majority is tested and by whom. You give us a taste of what it would look like if men of power and capital made that decision on their own. Why did you want to give us a close-up look at these particular men making this decision to begin a coup against a democratic government? Yeah. You know, again, when I started, I was like, oh, this is outlandish fiction you know, that I'm writing. <laughs> um, but I did have this sense that things were getting weird. I and mean, that's the best way I can describe it. And I guess, you know, a lot of people are asking me sort of, you know, why did you choose to inhabit these men in this way? And I will say, because we haven't seen them in fiction mm. and we haven't mm -hmm. seen them, it's funny to say, in our lives for most of us. So we kind of have ideas of who they might be. We kind of have some small sense, but I really wanted to bring them forward and it's spend time with them so that I could begin to understand them. And I'm always interested in human behavior and what compels people to behave the way they do. And I would say that the guys, especially the big guy, believes that he has a duty to protect and preserve democracy as he has always lived and experienced it. Uh, and one of my editors called and said, wait, this is confusing because democracy is supposed to be democratic hmm. and the things he's talking about are not democratic. And I said, well, it's interesting because the word democracy suddenly means different things to different people. And historically, it meant that, you know, white men who owned land voted. And there certainly has been a lot of effort in our country to make sure that women, people of color, uh, lots of people don't vote. 
And so that interests me also, you know, that landscape. Yeah, it's so interesting to think of the perhaps the earliest definitions of American democracy as incredibly limited as to who is participatory. Yeah, I think I think that we all kind of forgot that in some mm-hmm, ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and that again, it sounds like it sounds like I'm somebody who's fascinated by everything, but I am, and I do think, you know, when we think about the founding fathers. Um, it was very limited in terms of who democracy was for. And, and then America grew in the best of ways. And the, and the, you know, there was the birth of the American dream and the kind of great hope for all kinds of people to be able to live better lives. And now I would say we're living in a time of incredible, almost, you know, the American panic attack, Mm. um, which doesn't bring out the best behavior in anybody. Um, and no. so it's, you know, yeah. Part of the irony of your story is that John McCain, in retrospect, did everything right when it came <laughs> to political defeat. He insisted on treating his opponent as a fair-minded American who simply had different ideas for how to run the country. And he gave a generous concession speech urging unity. Why did you have that? as the catalyst to the big guy's desire to um, begin this coup. Yeah, I I think it's true. When we look back at John McCain and what he said that night uh, in Phoenix, it's impressive compared to what we've seen since then. Mm -hmm. I think for for the big guy and his sort of cohort, the Forever Men, that time period, 2008, was, for lack of a better word, further proof that they had lost the power to control American politics. So I look back even slightly further and I see the night that I went to sleep thinking Al Gore had won Mm. and I woke up and I met someone named Hanging Chad. (laughs) Just so (laughs) listeners know, is not a real person, but a concept. Um, And suddenly George Bush was president. And that was really in some ways a hat trick, you know, that the Republican party was able to, navigate because they had control of the state of Florida, among other things. And then, so that was sort of a a near miss in a way. And then I think Obama winning for many people was a a moment of incredible um, hope and the sense that, wow, there is a version of America that does fit the dream and things are possible for all kinds of people and people of all colors and people of all backgrounds and so on. And I think that that same moment where people poured into the streets elated for a whole other part of America tripped off an incredible flood of racism and sexism that has continued to, you know, it was always beneath the surface, but has continued to kind of, you know, bloom and grow. And I look at even the clawback now of, of Roe and I think, wow, this is really interesting that suddenly we are actually losing ground Um, so it's, yeah, I mean, the answer is a lot has happened and it's, I feel both pleased with myself from, cause I have this history of being somewhat prescient about, you know, things happening in this country. And like, I'm a reader of American society and culture. And the truth is I'm also terrified now Mm. because, you know, I finished this book well before January 6th, the publishing sort of cycle is that it takes a year to come out. And uh, I found that truly, truly terrifying. 
I think it's never it's never an an unerring goodness to be the oracle, um, and 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 it does feel oracular in in a lot of ways. And I'm I, I'm reminded as you as you talk about Barack Obama's hopeful as, ascension that there the racial component always felt like it undergirded a great deal of the opposition to his rise to power and this is this is sort of tacitly in in the big guy's response to it and and he has a a kind of easy way with racist side comments um, but i wonder how that kind of racial dimension was a kind of roiling underneath the the prose for you I think it it's it's very I mean for me it was it was inescapably always present um and the ways in which to you know we talk about and systemic racism and the ways in which um so much racist behavior racist profiling you know racist algorithms right you know that in mm-hmm, terms of mm-hmm. the information we see and the way things are are processed are right there and I felt like it was important on the one hand to have it be seemingly beneath the surface, because I feel like in many cases, that is sort of where it lives. Although the beneath the surface is also, I would say, a constant expression too. Do you know what I mean? Because it's mm-hmm. not, it never goes away. And the same with sexism. And that's why, you know, the characters of, of Megan and Charlotte are also there. The, the Megan being the daughter of the big guy and Charlotte being his wife to really also begin to illustrate the status of women's lives from a multi-generational perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, yeah, all that to say, I think that it's interesting because on the one hand, Obama's election, besides being historic, was this amazing moment and, and, and so liberating for so many people. And at the same time, the exact opposite was true also, where we began to see how incredibly deep racism runs. Yeah, that's right. The unfolding is a satire that, like the best of that mode, skewers everything in its path. This is done with incredible humor about subjects that are not very funny. How do you balance wanting to make the foibles of your characters comical while wanting to shine light on how very unfunny and dangerous these types of people are in real life and in politics? That's a super good question. I would say it's it's very complicated because on the one hand, I always want to render my characters as individuals, as people. And so on the one hand, people will read it and they'll say, oh, you know, it's interesting. I philosophically totally disagree with the big guy, but I find him compelling or I feel mm. compassion towards him. That almost makes me uncomfortable. Um, but also at the same time, there is this satirical edge which pushes things out a bit. And I will say that sort of two threads of an answer. One is that for the big guy and his cohort, the forever men, I wanted there to be a little bit different tonality than there is for the more sort of interior domestic story about the big guy and his family. Because I felt like when these guys were alone together, they kind of egg each other on. And I wanted to push that almost to a slightly more surrealist or absurdist, almost like Dr. Strange love tone. But the other piece about the humor that's, very important to me is I feel like humor is serious and humor serves a purpose of breaking the surface tension of things that we find difficult to tolerate, things we find difficult to talk about. And so if I can make a reader 
laugh while also dealing with this really serious story, then I feel, wow, that was successful. And I, I feel in general, in order to live in the world that we live in, where there's so much intense, you know, stuff happening, I have to also be able to laugh because otherwise I would just be sobbing all day. <laughs> That's so true. Uh, is it difficult to compete with an increasingly satirical reality? We are, after all, in the age of politics as farce, with Ted Cruz literally sneaking off to the Caribbean while his constituents freeze to death. Yes, is the answer. And it's funny, I, I would say that part I didn't really see coming. <laughs> <laughs> um, because I've always, in a way, written about, you know, American society, American culture. This novel is much more focused on American history and politics. But the turn in political language, in political activity toward the fully insane, I think I might call it, <laughs> was very hard to compete with because everyone talks about me as this, oh, you know, I'm this writer who's so transgressive and I write things in the extreme. And I will say, I'm also really an excellent catastrophic thinker. And <laughs> then think I'm writing and things in reality start happening that are more catastrophic than I could have imagined. It, it both hampered me and terrified me. And it's like, I felt like I was rubbernecking like the American process and, <laughs> and just, you know, driving slowly past an accident that was previously known as democracy. Um, so yeah, I mean, yes, but, and I don't know, I don't quite know both where we as a country go from here and I'm not even sure where I as a writer go from here, but I will say fascinatingly to me, many of my students now are writing speculative fiction, science fiction, fantasy fiction. Very few are interested in staying in reality. And I think some of that is a reaction to not knowing what to make of our world. Oh, I think you're so right. And I, I, I've heard that again and again from friends who, who teach writing. There's competitive narrative in the unfolding, and that's Megan's possible awakening to the fantasy life that she has been living, shielded from anything like the harsher realities of life in America. Why did you want to tuck this mini Bildungsroman into the heart of the satire? I felt like it was really important to, on the one hand, while I'm telling this story that is, you know, about history and political process, to also, number one, be telling a story about a family and a family coming to understand their own evolution and de-evolution in a way. And sort of through the process where they come to recognize, you know, things like the effect and the power of secrets on the family the big guy beginning to realize that as much as he thought he was always protecting his wife and child, he's actually kind of paralyzed them in a way. And importantly, Megan is also there as a sort of sing signal of hope and possibility in a certain sense. And so I wanted to, as much as the big guy looks at, you know, McCain losing and sees disaster, I wanted that to be a moment where Megan voting for the first time begins to realize that perhaps things are not the way they've always seemed to her. Perhaps she has been shielded from, you know, reality. Um, and I think mm. many of us, whether economically or philosophically or whatever, live in kinds of bubbles. And so I wanted to begin to show what happens when that bubble starts to pop, both for Megan and her mother, Charlotte. And to me, that, that juxtaposition and also those two characters 
are as as fascinating and as much a comment on where we are, you know, sort of in our evolution as a country and hopefully as a democracy as the big guy in his cohort. That leads me really nicely into the idea of this also as a domestic novel, a treatment of a flawed family as a microcosm for the flaws of the nation, the body politic. How did you want the to plot the relationship between the domestic and the political? That's such a good question. So, you know, and, and there's so, sort of multiple ways of answering it, but one of them is sort of um, historically men have always written the large scale political social novel, whether it's, you know, Tom Wolf, whether it's both of the Tom Wolfs. Hmm. Um, and women have, have sort of written the interior domestic. And I really wanted to weave those two together to braid those without losing sort of the, the power of either. And I thought for me, that was interesting to see the relationship. And somebody said to me the other day, well, why do you think it is that women haven't written, you know, the large scale great American novel or what I always call the pretty good big book. And I thought, well, everything from women weren't part of the workforce for a long time. Women weren't invited to have their own bank accounts. Women weren't invited to participate in large scale society and, and politics for so many years. Um, it, and even actually in the publishing industry, when women, you know, first got jobs, it was usually unmarried women who had a job until they got married and then were deemed not hireable because they might, God forbid, go and have a baby. <laughs> and also the jobs they got were clerical. They, they were hired to type. And then that progressed over time to being editorial assistants. But there is, a you know, if you look truly through history, there are threads that begin to explain why this was always difficult. And it felt important to me to both claim both those spaces and knit them together in some way. And they are really knitted together in a seamless way, which I think is it distinguishes it from books that I've read that have tried the sort of double handing of domestic and, and political, and they've felt like sort of two things. But this mm -hmm. is really, and I think it's your interest in that, how the family is in some way a mirror to the, to the nation's family and body that makes it so seamless. I, I wonder if for you, privilege is the sickness of the Republican plutocratic wing. You relish in these scenes of the big guy's conspicuous consumption, both mm -hmm. literally eating himself into a stupor filled with cream soups and two entire Thanksgiving dinners, but also a life where capital is employed to serve even the smallest needs. How does privilege factor into the country's malaise? You know, it's a great question. I would say I'm I'm absolutely interested in privilege, and I was also interested in sort of talking about these characters in the sense of sort of the more right wing. And someone pointed out to me the other day: often when we see right wing characters described, it's it's the down and out right wing. So we see you know hillbillies and hillbilly elegy and things like that, and stories of sort of poor people. And I feel like in part too, I wanted to illustrate where I feel like, you know, the nexus of power is in some ways. And, and you're absolutely right to notice things like the consumption of food and, and just the, the lack of awareness of the fact 
of how isolated also and, and how privilege builds its own bubble. So fascinated by that. Um, you know, I've had at times people when they perceived privileged characters in my books criticized me for it. I thought, you know, I'm interested in this. It is not my background. It is not the world I come from by any means. In fact, the opposite. But I think, I think it's interesting. And I think it's interesting to see, especially the way in this book, Megan is increasingly, you know, attuned to it and to the, the complexity of it. There's a moment I think where her father is saying something about um, how naive, you know, average common people are. And Megan is sort of like, what do you mean? And, and the idea too about voting that everyone should vote. And then he talks about, you know, how as a rich person, people should be glad to see him and glad to meet him and glad to, you know, receive his money and his good wishes. Um, and, you know, she's just sort of horrified by it. Um, and that, that to me is, you know, fascinating. And the idea too, that what is Megan growing into and what world will she inhabit? And on the one hand, due to her privilege, she obviously has exposure to, you know, parts of the political system that 99.9% of us never see, but it also means she has opportunity also, an opportunity to be a catalyst for change. Like as a complete sidebar, you know, I look at Liz Cheney in the last couple months and I think, wow, what happened there? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, no one could have told me when I started writing this book that a few years later, Liz Cheney would be standing up for the rule of law and to really protect and defend a, I would say, almost a shared vision of democracy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so that's fascinating to me, you know, and so I think those kinds of things I look at and I go, wow, that's cool. <laughs> you know, yeah, doesn't I, mean that she's a perfect person or a perfect candidate, but uh, interesting. Yeah, I'm dying for uh, a fiction writer to give a treatment to either Liz Cheney directly or someone who's a, a stand in for her just to try and get inside the interior that we'll never fully understand how that transition happened. Because I imagined her in, in my lifetime as, you know, literally like, you know, Dr. Strangelove riding the, you know, the bomb, you know, down to the ground kind of thing, just the most hawkish and seemingly unempathetic uh, politician. Right. And here she is, the, the paladin of democracy. Right. So what I see when I look at that, too, is, is exactly what you said. And then I think, OK, so uh, Dick Cheney, obviously we know who Dick Cheney is. Liz Cheney is the slightly older version of Megan. So, mm -hmm. you know, I see Liz Cheney having made this transformation. And I think Megan as you know, sort of in that same line is probably capable of even more transformation. Uh, I would love to interview Liz Cheney because I, I don't really know how that happened, but I am so impressed. Um, yeah, really impressed by that. And it seems like also in, in her growing into that, she too has had a kind of a, an, an awakening about who she might be that might be different from where she came from. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm 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 desperate to know more I know, about that too. that interior life because she is she is not a person to be trifled with, uh, and even though I doubt we would agree on on really a single thing other than preserving democratic institutions, I, I'm just utterly fascinated by her. I know, me too. I so I'm like. I want to talk to Liz Cheney. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> See if you can do that. You of all people might be able to score an interview. So please do for the rest of us. It is fascinating to me. And it's also interesting because, you know, I, I purposely picked like Wyoming because also of its relationship to taxes and all of these things. I was really trying to make sure that when I built the big guy and his cohort, you know, and the big guy is, is sort of has a, a, a boy crush or a man crush on Dick Cheney, which I found, mm-hmm. you know, slightly scary um (laughs) and yes just yes i want to know more about what's going on in liz cheney's mind and i think it'll be really interesting to see what her next you know what her next steps are yeah absolutely elizabeth anchor a guest on this show has a book called ugly freedoms in which she describes how the word freedom has been levied as a weapon to take away the freedoms of others often those with the least amount of power in many ways i find that you're dramatizing this idea in the unfolding could you talk a little bit about how you understand freedom and how you satirized the word itself in the novel yeah i mean i think i i am very interested in and concerned about the ways in which variety of people are using language and are using social media and media in general, and also the power of these algorithms that sort of sort for us. Um, and I think it's interesting when, you know, this character of Twitch Metzger, who is one of the forever men comes in and he's an ad man from Chicago. And he's the one who really sort of starts talking about language. And it's like, you know, don't say power, say, you know, freedom you know, mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, I think it's dangerous. I think that, you know, it, it, the idea of changing the meaning of words or using words as a different kind of code phrasing um, is not only confusing, it's super misleading. And so, you know, and we see this all the time with names of organizations and think tanks and things, you know, People for American Happiness, or whatever they could be, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, promoting euthanasia for all we know. I mean, you know what right. I mean. So, I feel like you know, there's that so much of what we previously agreed upon, including sort of rules for the way government would function, that we never thought we had to legislate, or you know, the way that we use language or speak to each other and understand what the other is saying, are suddenly all up for grabs. So. I don't know that book, but I really want to look at it because I think there's absolutely something about uh, power and and freedom that is, you know, inextricably bound. And I think enormous what we what we took for granted as freedom, including the the freedom to vote, is really up for grabs. And we Mm -hmm. and we have to be mindful. And the other day I was saying to somebody to not pay attention to all of these things and to be silent is to surrender. And I think we cannot surrender because we won't survive. And by that, I mean democracy. 
Yes. And, and, and I was struck as you were talking by this idea of, of definitions and who gets to control or manipulate definitions. And I often think in, in my mind about literature as, as quite different from political speech in that it, it can allow many um, competing definitions for words to exist in the same ken um, and interact with each other and play off of each other. But politics is all about cementing a, a term as having one definition that best suits your, your desire for power. Yeah. And then I would say the other piece of that that I've noticed lately is as literal as the flag. Like, who does the flag belong to? Mm. Because the flag seems like a football game, capture the flag. The flag seems to have been taken by the right and far right. And yet it is the American flag. It is the flag of all American people. Um, and often from the left or the far left, people look at the flag and frown upon it as though displaying the flag is not a good thing. So that's an interesting just, I mean, you know, obviously historic icon right a, a, an image and a thing and even now that's up for grabs what that means and what it means to any one person um your work you work in a lot of different genres you've recently done a lot of writing for tv and film and you're also a librettist for the yeah. opera would you talk about the what it's like to write in these other forms and whether they've changed your work as a novelist and writer of short fiction Sure. Um, there's so much one can say about it. I will tell you sort of a funny story. So the, the last libretti that I wrote was for the Kennedy Center's 50th anniversary, the Kennedy Center being in Washington, D.C. And they came to me and said, we have this project. We want people to write operas about monuments in Washington. And the composer I was working with, Kamala Sankram, decided she wanted to use a monument called the Portrait Monument, which is in the rotunda of the U.S. Capitol, and currently, and is the sort of one of the first, if not only monuments to women that was ever in the Capitol. It was given in 1920 when women got the vote to Congress, and then immediately the next day put in the basement for 70 years. Hmm. And it's Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Lucretia Mott, and Susan B. Anthony. So three suffragette women, suffragists. What was so interesting for me about that was on the one hand, thinking, okay, here's three white ladies in white marble that are supposed to represent all of women and all of the suffrage movement. And so how do we talk about that? How do we talk about history and how one finds their place in history? And so this particular assignment for me totally dovetailed also with, with me writing Megan and Megan in her history class and all these young women giving their reports. And so that was super, super interesting. And obviously the tools that one uses to write, you know, language for opera are very different than, than in a novel and also very different in TV. And I'll say it's so much fun to work in different mediums because each one has its sort of pluses and minuses. Like I would say, you know, writing for opera and especially having a chance to kind of unpack history and create something that will have, have meaning and resonance for you know, a, a wide range of like listeners and viewers. So from young people, I wanted to be able to talk about history to people who are much older, who've lived through a lot of history. That was fun. And then, you know, with TV stuff, it's it's a very fast medium. Um, 
you find out quickly if it's going to happen or not. But it also is a way of you have, you know, characters who get to inhabit things and do things that you would never get to do. And I realized there was one moment a long time ago with the L word where I was writing some scene and all these women, you know, hop aboard a private plane. And then, you know, a few weeks later we were filming it and they had like rented, you know, a private plane. And I see all the cast getting on the plane for the scene. I'm like, number one, I should get paid more. (laughs) Um, And number two, wow, it's crazy that you can just type, you know, they hop aboard a private plane. And then, you know, three weeks later, some plane has been rented. Now we didn't take off because that is crazy. (laughs) Right. But, it's just amazing. And so I love that. And I love spending time on the sets of, you know, these TV shows and seeing, you know, the hundreds of people it takes, you know, to make anything happen. But it's mm. it's fun. It's just crazy good fun. And and it sounds a lot less isolating than the work as, a, as of a novelist. A hundred thousand percent. So, you know, as a novelist, I sit here literally for years at a time and i you know i write a few words like ee, 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 and then i have to erase them, you know and then you know in, in in tv land you know you just literally write they hop aboard a private plane and somebody scrawls it on like a whiteboard you know and then like three weeks later it's happening um and so the the, the speed is different and it is nice to to not be alone all the time i will tell you my funny story is years ago when i thought i want to try out tv and I, I knew some people who were involved with the L word. So I thought, I'm just going to write them an email. So I emailed them and said, hey, can I come work on your TV show? And they were like, really? And I was like, <laughs> yeah, I really want to do that. And then my friends in New York were like, what makes you think you can do that? And I was like, well, what part? And they're like, well, what makes you think you can write TV? And my answer was, what makes you think I can have a job? <laughs> where, you, you know, where you have to go to an office and you have to sit upright for most of the day. Uh, that I was more worried, honestly, about that you know, uh, than the content of what I would have to produce. That's hilarious. <laughs> you know, but it was it's invigorating and it's fun. And then when I was working on started working on Mr. Mercedes, it was David Kelly was the you know producer, and there were just two writers that originally were hired, and we came in. And the first day, David said, you know, there's another writer who's interested in working on it, but maybe it's too late to bring in someone else. And I, I thought, that's interesting. Who is it? And the other guy writer said, you know, we don't need anyone. And I said, well, but who is it? And he goes, David says, it's Dennis Lehane. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) I said, hire him and we won't start until he gets here. Yeah. Um, And the other writer was totally bummed out. He was like, thanks for nothing. And I thought, no, we need Dennis and that'll be fun. And I want, I thought, great, you know, so it, it's all, it all evolves and moves around, but it is, it is so much fun to work with other people. And obviously if you get to work on Stephen King's material with David Kelly, I mean, you know, drop all else. Yeah. Oh, I, wow. That d- does sound like a dream. Before I let you go, I'd love to know if you have any recommendations for things you've been reading and loving. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's so much wonderful, wonderful, you know, material out there. I will say a couple things. One is I have recently become an incredible fan of Melissa Thebos. And in part because her work is fearless. Her work is clean and so articulate. And she pushes me as a writer to do better. And that is, at this stage of my life, is such a treat. 
So I love her work. Um, there's do you also have a, wonder- do you have a specific one that you, that you I like or. I don't, um, I would say anything you can read by her okay. really is, is just remarkable. And then there's a wonderful writer named Maria Popova, who many people know from her, uh, website, which was brain pickings and is now marginalia. She wrote a book called figuring that is about women sort of in science and art and the juxtaposition and sort of the untangling of all of those threads. And she really, she writes about ideas like science and, and, you know, astronomy and physics and whatever with really like the language of a poet. She's just an astoundingly brilliant writer. And I think we, we know her more often for her posts about, you know, literature and other things, but the book figuring is just amazing and blows me away. I always give it as a gift to people. So those are those are the two that are most on my mind these days. That, those sound wonderful. I don't know Melissa Phoebos. Fe- Phoebos. Yes. Um, and this book figuring sounds just wonderful and invigorating. So I'm I'm super excited to share those and as well as to share the unfolding. And I'm such an admirer of your work. And this has been a real treat to be able to get to talk with you. Chris, it's such a treat to get to talk to you and just thank you. I can't wait to see what you do next. Oh, thank you so much. Well, that's all from me for now. My great thanks to A.M. Holmes for a wonderful interview. Links to purchase AM's recommendations and the unfolding from local indie bookstores are on our website, burnedbybooks.com, where you'll find all of our previous episodes. We have an exciting list of guests for the upcoming fall, including one of the great American masters of short fiction, Andrea Barrett. I hope you'll come back for a listen. Until then, this has been Burned by Books. <laughs>